Hey, it's your old respiratory care buddy, Chuck Mohand, with yet another installment of our continuing saga of airways and types of airways. Uh, as you might recall, if you've listened to my previous ones, uh, we did a couple modules already, or sections, whatever you want to call them. Uh, module one, we uh, discussed in depth uh, nasal pharyngeal airways, or nasal trumpets, whatever you want to call it and uh, oral pharyngeal airways. Module two, we got a little more exotic and talked about esophageal and or supraglottic airways, and that included the combat tube, laryngeal mask airways, the king's airway, and salt airways. And this last but certainly not least module installment will be about airways that actually get inserted into the trachea. So we affectionately call them tracheal airways. Namely, I'm going to talk about endotracheal tubes and the most common designs and styles you'll see today in use in clinical practice, as well as tracheostomy tubes. So we've kind of covered the whole gamut, and I think it's good to start simple like we did with module one and kind of work our way up through these types of airways. And I consider the tracheal airways kind of the Cadillac of airways. These airways get inserted right into your trachea and they offer airway protection at a much better um, rate and success than the previous airways we, we talked about. Um, so let's talk about endotracheal tubes first. Um, there was a little bit of variation in in the design that you guys will see today with endotracheal tubes, uh, maybe not quite as much as years ago when they were first kind of came out, um, but there are still a little bit of variations and things you need to kind of keep in mind. Uh, most of them that you see today are gonna be made out of polyvinyl chloride or silicone, so some kind of plastic, clear plastic material. Uh, they can either come with cuffs on them or they can come without cuffs, and we'll talk about the sizes and um, and styles associated with cuffs and cuffless tubes here coming up. They can be single lumen, which is traditionally the most common one you'll see, or they can be double lumen tubes. If you maybe have the need to do independent lung ventilation, uh, a lot of times the double lumen tubes are mo most commonly seen up in the OR, where maybe you have to ventilate lungs with different size tidal volumes because the surgeon is resecting a tumor off of one lung or resecting a lobe or things like that. Um, so we'll talk about those. So I'm looking at PowerPoint slides I used in my lecture and there's a lot of pictures. So again, this is an audio podcast, so you don't see the picture. But when you think of a standard endotracheal tube, most of you probably think of a, a cuffed tube that we typically use for adults that has a pilot balloon, a pilot line, and then that cuff that's inside the patient once the tube is inserted that you don't actually see, but you kind of use the pilot balloon and pilot line to inflate and deflate the cuff that's inside the patient. Um, so that's what kind of first comes to my mind is that standard, just what I call normal run-of-the-mill endotracheal tube that has a cuff. Again, they do make double lumen tubes, and these are a little bit strange in design. Um, I think the most common example is called a Carlin's tube. So these have two actual different lumens, again, kind of like combat tubes, but obviously this is different because this is purposely and intentionally placed in the trachea. Um, you know, a lot of times with a bronchoscopic help as they um, intubate these patients with these. But again, commonly put in the OR, these common uh, are Carlin's tubes. It's basically, you know, two endotracheal tubes fused together um, and these have two pilot balloons, two pilot lines, and therefore two cuffs. 
Um, so you have a distal cuff that's very near the tip of the endotracheal tube on a double lumen tube, and that's kind of what a traditional one you think of. But you also have a bigger proximal cuff. And kind of like we talked about with combo tubes, in between these two cuffs, you have a, basically a little Murphy's eye or side ventilation port. Um, so again, you can ventilate one lung through the distal port that you're purposely putting into one main stem or the other. I think a lot of times the most common place to put the distal tip is into the left main stem bronchi. And then therefore the right lung is ventilated through that side port Murphy eye that sits between the two inflated cuffs. So again, you can use two separate ventilators and dial in different size tidal volumes and different ventilation settings for each lung. So. I will admit to this day, I I'm, would be very intimidated by seeing these tubes. Um, and I just talked to the, one of my clinical instructors that uh, works with my students at the hospital I used to work at as a therapist. And I was there for about 14 years before I made the switch to education. Um, I asked her, do you actually see these double lumen tubes? I mean, I talk about it in lecture to my students. I tell them you need to be aware of them, what they do, what the purpose is. But in my experience, I just never saw many of them. And my instructor's like, oh, yeah, we see them maybe about once a month and once every couple months. Uh, patients post-op from surgery might bypass the recovery room and go right to the ICU. So we do have them. A lot of times by the time the patient comes out, though, they're not really using that as an independent um, lung ventilation model. So you might only have it in there briefly until the patient wakes up and you can wean and extubate them, you know, post-op once the, all the anesthetics are kind of out of their system or, 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 or reversed. So she said that they're kind of seeing more of these. So it's definitely something you need to be aware of. Uh, you probably would need a little more training than what I'm giving you with this little uh, mini podcast here about it but do know that those carlin's tubes double lumen endotracheal tubes do exist great for independent lung ventilation and you just know they're different because you know obviously you see it's a double lumen and two pilot lines and balloons and two cuffs so you probably need a little more training to get comfortable with them again that's something i never really felt like i got so i to this day i'm still a little intimidated by these but the theory behind them i understand it's just actually using them I would be a little nervous at first until maybe I got the hang of it. Um, more on endotracheal tubes. Most commonly, you, you just have air-filled cuffs. So we take a you know maybe a 10 ml or 10 cc syringe and inflate it with an appropriate volume of air to keep a good seal and inflate the cuff that's inside sealing off the trachea and protecting the airway. That's the most common style you see. I have heard of maybe more common with tracheostomy tubes, but I have heard of endotracheal tubes. Some institutions use like saline to fill the cuffs, which again, I guess you can do. It's to me, that's just a little, you know, strange. And I, I'd want to see more about it before I'd feel comfortable trying to teach much about it, but I have heard they exist. Um, we do have in our lab, a very old example of a foam filled cuff on an endotracheal tube. The big claim to fame for foam filled devices as far as cuffs where they're supposed to be less traumatic to the patient's airway um, and again I, I i have seen a lot of uh bavona was a brand name bavona film foam filled tracheostomy tubes but as far as endotracheal tubes i just have one example and it looks like it's from about the early 
1970s. It's very old. The sheath covering the foam has actually been ripped off. But I do know at one point it exists. And again, the, the big benefit of foam-filled cuffs um, is they were supposed to be less traumatic to the airways than air-filled ones. Um, you know, then maybe that's, I don't know how much research has proven that's actually the case, but that was the big selling point of a lot of these foam-filled cuff products when they hit the market. And another difference with endotracheal tubes as far as design and style is you got to look and compare adult endotracheal tubes with infant, infant, infant endotracheal tubes. And I think the thing that, you know, obviously the size jumps out at you right away. Infant endotracheal tubes are definitely smaller, tinier, much smaller lumens of airways, shorter in length. Well, you know, obviously you're not going to put a size 8 adult endotracheal tube into a baby. It wouldn't even fit. Um, so different strokes for different folks, different sizes for different needs. But another key difference is adult endotracheal tubes, for the most part, have to have a cuff as part of their design. And the biggest reason for that is in the, in the adult airway, the glottis or the opening between your vocal cords and your patient is the narrowest part of an adult airway. So since that's the case, we need an artificial cuff to seal off and protect the airway from aspiration and reflux, you know, things falling down in the airway where we don't want that uh, junk and gunk to get. Uh, we need a cuff to do that. And that's not necessarily the case with infants because with infants, anatomically, their cricoid cartilage, and so that's your first tracheal ring, the only one that completely encircles your trachea, you know, sets be beneath your thyroid cartilage. And then between your cricoid and thyroid cartilage, you got that cricothyroid membrane, which you guys have probably learned you can do um, cricothyroidomies through that in an emergency. If you ever watch the movie The Heat with Sandra Bullock, that's what she tries to do on the guy in the cafe, and it doesn't work well. It's pretty funny, but I, I try to show my students that little clip of that movie just because it's, you know, funny, but she does at least try to do it. It doesn't work out well, but anyways, um, so that since the narrowest part of a baby's or infant's airway is the cricocartilage, that acts as its own anatomical seal. So that is the biggest reason why endotracheal tubes meant for infants do not require an artificial cuff as part of their design. Now, I went to an in-service a couple years ago with a pediatrician that stood up and said, everybody says that. Everybody says that the reason endotracheal tubes for babies do not need cuffs is the cricoid cartilage is the narrowest part of the airway and acts as anatomic seal. And she said, we we're all told that. And she proceeded to say, that's not really true. That's not why. And then when she went further in, in her explanation as to why this isn't true, she actually kind of said it is true. So I was really confused when I went to that um in service and is like well for years that's what we were always told and then when she attempted to explain why that's not really the case she basically you know argued against herself and said well that that kind of is why so i'm going to stick with that and it, to me it's the simplest explanation why those tubes are uh, designed differently uh, so basically, sizes of endotracheal tubes, they're sized by their inner diameter, or capital I, capital D, and you'll see that stamped on the tubes, and it's labeled very prominently on all the packages they come in. Typically, we see sizes, the smallest on the market available is a 2.0. These have half sizes as well, endotracheal tubes, though, so you go from a 2.0, 2.5 to 3 to 3.5 and so on and so forth. The biggest I've ever heard of is a size 10. 
The biggest I've personally ever used in my life is a size 9.5 for a, a pretty big, tall, heavy set monster of a man we intubated years ago. Um, so basically from size two up to 10, I, again, in a common practice for adults, I, you know, even though I've seen a nine and a half used, nine is typically about the biggest we put in other than that one patient. Um, typically, and I guess it varies, and every time I say this, I found examples that prove me wrong, but from 6.0 and up, those are available as cuffed endotracheal tubes. Now, having said that, right in my own lab, I have examples of size 5 and 5.0 endotracheal tubes with cute little cuffs actually on them. And we've talked to places um, and therapists that work in um, one of the clinical sites I send my students to is a, a very big uh, neonatal center, uh, pediatric center, uh, you know, children's hospital. I don't know why I couldn't spit that out. But... Um, they said, oh yeah, we have even size 2.0 cuffed tubes because we do so many surgeries and we have to have special endotracheal tubes and, and things like that. So there are exceptions to that rule, but you know, at least that's kind of what I learned as a student. 6.0 and up are available as cuffed. Things below 6.0 typically are uncuffed. Again, there's outliers and um, things that break that rule. Again, I, I have size five and 5.5 cuffed tubes in my lab just to show students that there are exceptions, but that's kind of the main uh, thing I wanted you to know about that. Uh, if it does have a cuff on your endotracheal tube, obviously it has to have a pilot line and a pilot balloon as part of its, of its design because that's the way you communicate with the cuff. Obviously, once a patient's intubated, you can't see the cuff, you can't touch it. Your only guide is to kind of play around with the pilot balloon and, you know, if it's got air in it, chances are your cuff has air in it. Now, obviously, you will talk later that you need to measure the cuff pressures and make sure everything's actually at a safe level. Um, but that's how you communicate with a cuff once it's placed in the patient is through the pilot balloon and pilot line. Um, part of the pilot balloon, which I, I just had my students uh, last week play around with this so they get a better uh, understanding of this, is it has a little spring-loaded, basically one-way valve as part of the design in the balloon. And that what is what lets air stay in the system once you inject air in. And you don't have to keep a syringe on it or worry about using stopcocks or anything fancy. That little spring-loaded valve, once you inject your 8 to 9 mLs of air or whatever you're using to inflate an adult cuff, you, you're able to pop your syringe off and that spring-loaded valve kind of you know keeps air trapped in the system so the balloon is inflated and that communicates with the cuff and the cuff should be inflated too with whatever you put in it. So, and we have... Our students buy, we give them little, uh, basically backpacks full of different types of equipment. One of the things they get so they can take it home and study and play around with it, plus bring it to the lab when we're ready for the different things, is we give them a couple of endotracheal tubes. You know, while we don't, I shouldn't say we, it's not for free, it's part of their lab fees. But that way they can really play around and, and you know, take a 10 ml syringe home with them and inflate and deflate the balloon and really inspect that and get an idea of what I'm talking about. Plus use in lab, so it gets us some practice and hands on with that. So again, you add air to the system with a syringe. Usually we, air is the most common thing, although like I said, what, 
with tracheostomy tubes more so than endotracheal tubes. You can use certain brands and styles want you to use uh, sterile water saline as, instead of air. I've never seen it, but I've just heard of it. Um, let's see. The, the design you see today as far as the cuff is a high volume slash low pressure design. Years ago when they first started making endotracheal tubes, that wasn't the case. A lot of the older styles was the opposite, was a high pressure, low volume design, and that obviously was not good for the delicate tracheal mucosa. So a high volume, low pressure cuff kind of spreads out the air within the cuff, so it's not putting pressure on one you know, pinpoint area of your tracheal mucosa. So the high volume means it's when it's inflated, it inflates more like a square instead of like a little triangle shape, and that would be more like what a high-pressure, low-volume cuff would look like inflated, where a lot of pressure is being pinpointed to one, you know, small area of your trachea mucosa, just have more of a chance of eroding into that tissue, cutting off blood supply to the area and causing tissue necrosis and, and death and bad things to happen. Or maybe, you know, in the extreme, a tracheoesophageal fistula would be informed if there's way too much pressure in that old-style high-pressure, low-volume cuff design. So, again, much safer what we have now compared to what they came out with years ago when they first hit the market. Um, and then endotracheal tubes do fit all four indications for airways. If you remember clear back in Module 1, we talked about the four indications for airways. Um, you know, removing obstruction, facilitating suctioning, being able to protect the lower airway and allowing for application of positive pressure ventilation. Tracheostomy tubes and endotracheal tubes, and I guess, well, since we're talking about endotracheal tubes, this is the first one that does all four of those indications. The previous airways we talked about, whether it was a pharyngeal or esophageal supraglottic, they maybe did two of the indications or maybe just one decently maybe three kind of when you got to the you know more advanced ones but tracheostomy tubes and endotracheal tubes are the two types of airways that actually fit the bill and meet all four indications for artificial airways that we talked about previously so still on endotracheal tubes if you haven't realized it by now i'm sure you have and you've seen these they have all kinds of numbers and markings and letters and little dashes or triangles all throughout the length of the tube um, and there's different things we got, got to talk about so i guess it's not really marking but a, a design or a part of a standard endotracheal tube is you have to have a universal 15 millimeter adapter on the proximal end of it that allows you to attach it to ventilators or to two manual resuscitation bags and that's great because it's universal, so it doesn't matter what brand of ventilator you're using or if it's in the OR where maybe they have different types of ventilators and equipment than what standard respiratory therapists use in the ICU. It doesn't matter. This 15 millimeter universal adapter allows us to attach any kind of respiratory or anesthesiologist equipment to it and ventilate patients directly through it. Again, you'll see marked and stamped on the tubes, usually up near this adapter, a big capital I and a capital D that stands for inner diameter and that's the size so if a doctor says give me a size 6 endotracheal tube or give me an 8.5 it's referring to the actual inner diameter of the tube OD stands for outer diameter that's usually stamped on the tube as well and it's always on the package that the tubes come in 
and, and typically we don't care as much about outer diameter. I don't want to say we don't care at all because obviously we want tubes that fit into our patient. So um, I think we have emphasis on the inner diameter because that's how they're sized and just in general people just use the inner diameter as a term a lot more often. But we're outer diameter, I think the biggest concern about outer diameter is when we have these what we call evac tubes or tubes that have the continuous suctioning, um, you know, add-on feature that, you know, the hole above the cuff um, that allows you to do continuous uh, glottic suctioning and getting secretions removed that are, are pulling above an inflated cuff. Evac tubes, and I, I know one brand is called a high-low evac tube. Uh, very popular now. I was in the hospital when these first came out and there was debate, on, you know, because they're a lot more expensive than standard endotracheal tubes. But when research started coming out and saying, hey, these do a great job of helping to prevent or at least reduce the rates of ventilator associated pneumonia or VAP, which is their big selling point, we started using them a lot and now we see them all the time. I mean, it's almost shocking when we see a patient that's not intubated with one of these evac tubes and they have an old school standard one. But anyways, I got off on a tangent there. That's where outer diameter is different. So a size A evac tube actually has a bigger outer diameter than a standard size A endotracheal tube just because of this suction um, device that's part of the evac tube. You have to have that suction embedded into the wall of the tube, so obviously it's got to take up more space. So you might have patients where trying to intubate them with a size A evac tube is too tight of a fit and you can't get it in there, but switching to just a standard size A endotracheal tube might allow you to easily intubate them. So there is a difference. So in, in my opinion, that's where outer diameter kind of comes into play the most when you're making a decision whether you can intubate with a sta uh, evac tube or a standard tube there is a slight difference in outer diameter so again looking at my slides now i have a picture of an evac tube and again if you haven't seen these which i'm sure you have you you can google this or you know just do a search for it and we got these out uh, just this week, actually, in lab and let the students play around. And right away, you know, I, I, I lecture about it and talk about it and show them a picture is one thing. But I have a bunch of examples of them in the lab that say, oh, okay, now we know what you mean. Here's the extra. It looks like an extra pilot line, but it's not. The extra line is the suction port. And it has an adapter that you can hook up to the standard suction tubing. Uh, a lot of hospitals have policies as far as how much pressure you and a manufacturer has actual recommendations as far as suction pressure that you should use and whether you want to use a continuous vacuum applied to that um, suction port or if you want to use an intermittent and typically at least when i was back in the hospital we used to have an option so if you chose the continuous vacuum pressure on your suction regulator it was with maybe, I can't remember, maybe 15 to 20 ml or millimeters of mercury of vacuum pressure versus the intermittent. I can't remember and I don't want to misspeak, but I know with the intermittent suction pressure, we, we set it at a higher pressure. So, you know, it's intermittent. It only comes on every once in a while. So it makes sense that when it does come on, you, you have to have a stronger vacuum and more negative pressure to suck out the secretions that have been pulling there for a longer period. I know the hospital where I used to work as part of an evac tube protocol, 
we would disconnect the suction tubing and inject 10 mLs of air through that suction port to the evac tube to verify that it wasn't clogged up or blocked because people with maybe copious or thick secretions can actually plug up their evac tube. And if you're not sucking it through that little hole above the cuff, that it's meant to do well then you're defeating the whole purpose of this so we have had some that you know actually the patient's secretions are so so thick or something's happened or the tube doesn't work the way it should you know that's not good because that defeats the whole purpose of an evac tube if your suction port is blocked and it's not doing its job it's basically now functioning as a standard uh, endotracheal tube um, i have had again i was kind of i mean evacs were getting more popular but I have seen them kind of make weird sounds and things like that. And it's usually tells you that there's a problem. Things are getting blocked up or your, or your ports getting blocked. Um, but the theory behind these evac tubes are great. That's, I mean, and the research has proven that these work, do a great job of clearing pharyngeal secretions above the cuff, less likely the patient's going to aspirate. Again, they're, they're more expensive. So that's one of the big drawbacks that I don't think they're as expensive as they were when they first came out. Um, but I know there was a huge difference when they first came out and that was one reason why our department that has that kind of resisted it, or at least certain areas of the hospital didn't want to go to that. But again, now they're, they're so commonly seen now. I think they're at least around here where I'm at in Ohio, evac tubes are probably more commonly seen than just the standard tubes anymore. Um, more on design or features of endotracheal tubes. Um, they have the number markings in centimeters up and down the length of the tube. So what that number marking means is that's the distance from that number to the tip of the tube in centimeters. So if you're at, looking at the 24 centimeter mark, it's telling you from that point to the end of the tube is exactly 24 centimeters. And I always tell my students, that's what it means. That's great. But what respiratory therapists typically use those numbers for is for reference points as far as tube placement. So we might chart patient has a size 8.0 ET tube, tape your secured at 24 centimeters at the lip. So it's a reference point. So if I know I came in, you know, two hours later and my tube now looks like it's 21 at the lip, it's been withdrawn or retracted out of their mouth by three centimeters. So not good. So it's more of a, to verify tube placement than it is to know, okay, that's from that point there, that's how far it is to the tip of the tube. Again, that's what the number represents. That's what it really means, but we use it in a different way as a reference point. I try to point out to students that's very important to know that where your patient's supposed to be secured at. Um, it's more so, it's, you know, it's important for every patient, but especially preemies and babies. They can't tolerate their tubes being moved much at all because they're so tiny. You know, ideally you want the tip of the tube to be about three to seven centimeters above the carina on an adult. I mean, some resources give you different ranges, but from what I've seen, that's, that's the general range. Now, obviously seven centimeters above the carina is getting pretty high above and some doctors get a little nervous about that and won't like that. And they'll tell you to advance it. But with babies, you know, moving the tube three, four, five centimeters on a newborn or preemie, especially can be extubating them it can be shoving it down the right main stem with adults you got a little more leeway just because their airways are bigger um other markings you might see on endotracheal tubes it might have an it stamp on it saying it's been implant tested you might see some stamp from the 
American National Standards Institute or like a Z79 stamp from a committee that says, hey, this has been approved by anesthesia professionals and it's meant for human use and it's great. Um, and again, it should have that standard 15 millimeter adapter on the, the proximal end. Another key feature of all endotracheal tubes, regardless of size, style, whether they're cuffed or cuffless, is they all have to have a radio opaque line as part of the tube design and that's what allows you to see it on x-ray without that you won't see the tube or you'll just see parts of it the radio opaque line verifies and lets us see on x-rays exactly where the tip sits so a very key feature of that usually they're just a blue or black stripe on your endotracheal tube depending on the brand but that's what it's there for is to let you see it on an x-ray tracheostomy tubes changing gears to the other big player in this tracheostomy airway game um they have some advantages and I'll admit as a student, I, I mean, I went to a great school, got my bachelor's degree in respiratory therapy, but I kind of felt when I graduated that I really didn't know much about endotracheal or about tracheostomy tubes. I felt very intimidated by them. So when I teach my students, I probably spend more time than I should on trach tubes just because I felt very intimidated by them as a student. I draw a lot of pictures so they know Okay, if your cuff is inflated or deflated on your tracheostomy tube, where can air go? Well, if you remember where it sets anatomically, and it all goes, because I teach anatomy and physiology as well, and the semester before I teach students about airway care, so I think it's good that they have a consistent teacher to show this stuff to them. But always go back to A&P and say, okay, let's draw pictures or look at slides here. Okay, where are tracheostomy tubes placed? They're placed down in your trachea, usually between or around the second or third tracheal ring. So that's below or inferior to your larynx. So if you have a properly placed tracheostomy tube with an inflated cuff, air should not be reaching the vocal cord. So thus patients can't talk, they can't make sounds. When they cough, you'll hear air rush out of the trach tube, but they don't make sounds out of their nose and mouth. Um, and that's key later if you're trying to diagnose if the patient has a dislodged tube or it's not in the trachea anymore and you see the cuff is inflated and you know it is but the patient's talking that's not a good sign I mean that's got to tell you there's something really wrong and strange going on here but we'll get to that later so I guess with in my lecture when I change gears of tracheostomy tubes Again, this is an artificial trachea airway, so it meets all four indications for airways that we talked about clear back in module one. You can ventilate through it, you can suction through it. Offers great airway protection, and it does a great job of bypassing any obstructions because it's down below the tongue, which is usually one of the most common forms of airway obstruction. So it should give you direct access to the trachea and easily ventilate people through it. Um, these have advantages over endotracheal tubes. And I, I guess I forgot to mention, man, this kind of so, sometimes freaks students out. My students kind of get their eyes grow about three sizes. When I tell them, what, getting back to endotracheal tubes briefly, you can nasally intubate people with endotracheal tubes. It's a little more rare. Obviously, the most common route is orally. But if you have a patient that's going to have jaw surgery or teeth extraction and you don't want an endotracheal tube flopping around in the oral cavity, you can nasally intubate them. Or, you know, I, I had a patient years ago where a big spring on a garage door busted apart and came up and snapped and hit him in the face and broke his jaw, broke out a bunch of teeth, compromised his airway. Now he ended up getting a stat tracheostomy tube placed, but um, 
if they couldn't have got that placed emergently like they did, they were going to have to try to nasally intubate him because of all the trauma to his jaw and mouth. They didn't want to try the oral route at all because they knew it was all already compromised. Um, so don't forget, because I, I kind of glossed over it, you can nasally or orally intubate patients. Obviously, if you nasally intubate them, you're probably going to have to place a smaller tube than maybe what you'd ideally like. Um, I've seen some pretty bad bloody noses over the years by people trying to get it intubated with size 8 endotracheal tubes that are adults. Um, because that's what we'd want to do orally full-grown man ideally especially if you know they're going to do a bronchoscopy on them it's always best to put at least a size 8 in a patient but not always meant to be rammed down someone's snout so you might have to use you know obviously you got to lube it up good with water soluble lube but it's a tight fit so you're probably gonna have to use a smaller size anyway getting back to tracheostomy tubes some advantages of trach tubes over endotracheal tubes is again we can place these in the presence of obvious facial trauma and deformities um, where intubation is maybe impossible or not practical. Much better oral care is possible, whether therapists at your hospital do oral care or nurses. Someone needs to do it. And I think you'd all agree it's easier to do it with an endotracheal tube not there and in your way and blocking your access. So trach tubes are better for that. Uh, tracheostomy patients can be allowed to eat, can be allowed to talk and speak, and that's clearly not possible with cuff tubes, especially on adults. Um, you can't eat with a big endotracheal tube in your mouth because you're going to be trying to chomp on the tube, and everything you swallow would maybe be endotracheal tube flavor, flavored. I don't, I'm just kidding. That wouldn't be good. But um, more comfortable for your patient, even though it doesn't sound comfortable to have a big hole cut in your neck and a tube put in your windpipe through that stoma they create from surgery. And the long term, it is more comfortable. Um, after patients heal up after a couple of days and start to feel a little bit better, yeah, they know it's there and it might still be a little tender, but it's still better than being nasally or orally intubated for a couple of weeks because that's causing some trauma that maybe you, uh, than bargain for and you know it's less traumatic to the airways typically long term you're obviously not going to damage the vocal cords like endotracheal tubes can so you know a lot of babies infants preemies can get uh, tracheal stenosis from just the damage that endotracheal tube can cause from being in there maybe longer than what they like before they ended up tracheal the um, patient so that's good and a good thing about a tracheostomy tubes is they can be downsized usually once they're well established you know we're talking after someone's had trach tubes for in place for months it's pretty easy to downsize them and i'm not going to get into trach tube exchanges that's probably for another lecture um, but it's easier to go from like a size eight tracheostomy tube and you want to downsize it down to a size six it's you know the stoma is already meant for a size eight so it should be a easy peasy trach tube exchange when you're downsizing to downsize on an endotracheal tube number one that's not really practical to do so um, and typically you don't downsize endotracheal tubes if you think they need a smaller size maybe it's time to extubate them and see if you know they're ready for that um, so it's a it's easier to do if you're going to downsize on yeah you can do tracheal tube exchangers um, sometimes those don't work great but anyways, it should be pr relatively easy if someone's trained on doing tray tube exchanges to downsize. Pretty easy. Um, what's something that tracheostomy patients can't do? I mean, because with everything that has advantages, there's also disadvantages. 
So disadvantages of tracheostomy tube, obviously the big drawback is they all require surgery, whether you do a percutaneous surgical route at the bedside in ICU, or you actually do an open technique in the traditional OR surgery and take them to the operating room and have it done there. Surgery always has a risk of bleeding and infection, so there's no way to avoid that. I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen, but you got to know that your patients are at risk for that um, when they get a tracheostomy tube place. Uh, you, patients, a lot of time it gets down to doing poor trach care, um, but they can get repeated infections at the stoma site. Maybe they're just not doing a very good job of cleaning it. Um, so they got just constant, you know, secretions bubbling out of their stoma that are already, you know, colonized with bacteria and they're not doing a good job with trach care and cleaning it and kind of disinfecting that and trying to keep it as clean as it can. They can be set up for repeated, repeated stoma infections. Um, terrible suction technique or using dirty catheters and dirty hands to touch your trach tube can um, cause repeated airway infections because once something gets in your tracheostomy tube, there's nothing stopping it from colonizing and then this infection spreading further and further down until it gets in your trachea, bronchitis, pneumonia, and all that stuff just spreads. Um, and we, I, when I was in the hospital, we would get what we call frequent flyers. People that had tracheostomy tubes that just came in all the time with recurrent bronchitis, re recurrent infections. And you can know what's going on. And we try to get home care involved, but you can't control a lot of times what people do in the privacy of their own home. And when they're doing kind of, you know, they're, you know, one patient we had, she would constantly, t you know, plug her trach tube with a, a thumb or a finger and deflate her cuff to talk, which is fine. That's what she's trained to do, I guess, to talk. But the fact that you're touching that tracheostomy tube with probably dirty fingers, this patient constantly coughed up mucus directly into her fingers and would kind of then, I don't know if she'd reminisce or what you call it, but she'd look at it and kind of play around with it before she wiped it on her sheets or wiped it on a Kleenex. Well, you're constantly re-inoculating yourself with bacteria if you're doing that. So I'd say if she's gross enough to do that in front of you, she's probably not washing her hands after she uses the bathroom either. So it's just, you know, maybe that's a big assumption on my part, but not really because she came in with repeated infections and we told her that you got to stop touching your trach with dirty hands all the time. That's probably what's causing it. Um, so that, that can be a problem. Uh, another big thing is you really shouldn't go swimming once you have a tracheostomy tube. I had a patient years ago that was a YMCA lifeguard and he had um, frequent intubations. I don't want to get into all the background behind it, but it got to the point where the pulmonologist told him, hey, if you come in again with respiratory failure, I'm going to suggest we trach you because it's not good to keep being re intubated and reintubated like i mean the guy had been intubated like six times and something crazy and the patient said well then i don't want to use my doctor because i'm a lifeguard and i know if i get a tracheostomy tube i can't swim and he must have loved being a lifeguard so much that he um that's what he got his wish he didn't get trached and i don't know that he actually came back to the hospital so maybe everything worked out great but I just know he's a frequent flyer and it made sense. Hey, it's going to save you a lot of trauma and everything on your body. If you just bite the bolt and get a trach tube, because the next time you have one of your episodes, it's, you don't have the trauma of intubation. We just pop a vent circuit on the trach that's already there. 
having said that, that you shouldn't swim, I, there is a couple interesting YouTube videos I show my students just because I think it's interesting. Um, I can't remember her last name, but the, her name is Dana. And I think she had a tracheostomy when she was younger for tracheal stenosis, um, I think is what her problem was as a child. And she's a teenager. I mean, these videos are a few years old. I have no idea if she still has a trach tube in or if she's still making videos. Very inspirational. Um, she had so, several videos. Basically, you know, don't look at my trach as a disability is kind of the gist of all her videos. But on one of them, she goes swimming after I told the students, hey, you can't swim at all after you get a trach tube. She's learned to cover her trach tube with her chin when she jumps into the pool. So it's blocked and, and she can hold her breath. So she's got a trach tube blocked and she's holding her breath through her mouth and her nose. And I think she has a cuffless trach if I remember right. Um, so it was very interesting to see. And she said, well, it's no big deal. If you get some water that goes down your trach tube, you, you just cough it out. So she makes it sound kind of a no big deal. Now to me, that'd be terrifying if you're, you know, you're drowning basically, if water is just flooding into your tracheostomy, but I guess it's no different than just water going down the wrong way. If you're swimming and it goes in your nose and mouth and you aspirate a little bit of it, you just come up and cough and hack it out. So kind of interesting, but for the most part, I would say kids don't go swimming once you got a trach. It's just kind of scary, risky. Uh, complications of the procedure itself of getting your tracheostomy to place. You can have hemorrhage from your stoma site either early, like right after surgery or the first several days after surgery, you know, bright red frank amount of blood is not good. That means an artery's probably ruptured or something that the surgeon's gonna have to go back in and revise. You can have late hemorrhage and that's a little scarier too because we're talking maybe months down the road. It's usually the inominate artery because it runs close to, um, a lot of times where tracheostomy tubes are placed, we're talking a trach tube with a cuff and with the cuff inflated over time, it's just kind of eroded into the tracheal mucosa until it ruptures and eats into the anominate artery wall. And that can cause bright red, frank, you know, huge amounts of bleeding to come from the stoma and they're coughing up blood and everything else. And you think, well, this is really bad because they've had the trach in for weeks or months and this is very unexpected. That's usually what it has. So anytime you got bleeding, it's bad. You know, you expect some bleeding post-op just because they did have a big, you know, gaping hole cut in their neck and they're going to have some trauma from that. But you don't want to see, you know, large amounts, you know, a little bit is normal and you can work with a nurse and surgeon to determine what you think is a reasonable amount of blood. Um, you know, whether it's just a few mLs a day, you know, total, you know, it's not bright red. And if it's more oozing and it looks like it's older just from trauma surgery, it's okay. Apnea and respiratory rest, especially if that tube gets dislodged or plugged, you know, that's not a risk you have if your patient doesn't have a tracheostomy tube. Typically, people don't occlude their entire airway with a little mucus plug, but with a trach tube, that can happen. Or people can go into respiratory rest. Again, if the trach tube is dislodged, um, that's bad. Uh, drop in blood pressure during the surgery, that's always a risk. Uh, airway obstruction, I already talked about mucus, blood clots, I've even had cases where the tissue of the trachea itself is kind of blocking the trach tube if it's been moved a little bit or something weird like that's happened or at least a fenestration on the trach tube. Subcutaneous emphysema is never a good thing when a patient has a tracheostomy. That's just a fancy word for air where air shouldn't be. Air should not be in your tissues and underneath your skin. Air should only be in the trach tube and in your tracheal air column. 
So if you've got subcutaneous emphysema, a lot of people say it feels like the, like the packing bubbles you get from UPS or wherever where you can pop them. Some people say it feels like kind of like Rice Krispies crunching and popping when you palpate and feel a patient's neck and chest. A lot of times you see the swelling and you start feeling around. It's like, oh, that's weird. That's like crunchiness and things like popping. If your patients are alert, they're probably kind of wincing because it hurts them a little bit while you're doing that. It's a big teaching thing. Every time we have students and we got a patient with sub-Q emphysema, it's usually a patient on event that at that point is probably sedated. And as a learning thing, we usually try to get students in there and say, hey, feel this. You need to know and learn what sub-Q emphysema feels like so you know it when you feel it you know, later in your career. Because it's not good. It's usually a sign that it's either currently dislodged or at some point the trach tube was dislodged. I, you know, your abdomen can perforate and other stuff. You can get air up there, I guess, and other routes. But if you got a trach tube and you feel sub-Q emphysema, you got to alert the doctors and surgeons and tell them what you're seeing and feeling. And the tracheostomy tube is possibly completely dislodged or was partially dislodged. Maybe you fixed it and popped it in the right place. Um, and it could be a big emergency because if you don't do anything to fix that and it gets bad enough, it can turn into a massive pneumothorax, especially if they're on positive pressure ventilation. Uh, other complications of tracheostomy tubes, tracheal esophageal fistulas over time. Even if you keep safe cuff pressures on your trach tube, it can still erode into your patient's tracheal mucosa and cause a T fistula. And that's not good because now food can migrate from your esophagus while they're eating and just nothing stop it from going down into your trachea. And that's definitely not good. Um, so you don't want a hole where a hole shouldn't be. Typically in your body, that's not a good thing. And so T E fistulas are a problem. A lot of times they need, you know, surgery to fix it and repair that. Um, wound infections, I kind of talked about before, uh, abscesses, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if it's a complication. All trach tubes are going to cause scarring if your patient eventually gets rid of the trach tube. It's part of the healing process. But part of that scarring could be abnormal keloid tissue and granulomas and kind of weird things that the patient might have to have some further revision on to get rid of those unsightly things or if they're already there and the trach tubes there they can make trach tube exchanges a lot more difficult because those little keloids and granulomas like to block the stoma and you take the old tube out and you try to put the new one in and you're like okay this big weird thing here is blocking me i can't get it in the way i should uh, parts is parts is what my slide here says so no matter what tracheostomy tube you have they all have four main parts then obviously there's other parts if it's cuffed or uncuffed and we'll talk about those but um they all have a 15 millimeter standard adapter so you can ventilate through them that's either part of the inner cannula if your trach tube has an inner cannula or if your trach tube is only a single cannula trach it's got to be part of the outer cannula but whatever route you're using it's got to have that 15 millimeter adapter as part of its design um, they all have neck plates or flanges, whatever you want to call them. The big flat part that prevents your trach tube from being sucked into that stoma and the patient aspirating the whole bloody thing. That'd be terrible. Another nice thing about the neck plates is there is where all your information is as far as inner diameter, outer diameter, uh, size. Well, I guess that's inner diameter. Uh, whether it's cuffed or uncuffed. Uh, Shiley especially does a great job of having initials and little stamps on their neck plates that tell you, is it 
fenestrated, non-fenestrated, cuffed, uncuffed? Is it an XLT or extra long trach that's not the standard size? That's all implanted and stamped on the neck plate. So very useful to know what brand, and obviously the brand name's usually on there as well, but it gives you a lot of information. Especially, again, like Shiley is pretty much the most common brand our students get exposed to. They just have a huge list of nomenclature that tells you it, once you understand exactly what trach tube you're dealing with. So once you understand what the initials mean, you know what style and size and all that stuff you have. Um, trach tubes all have cannulas. They all have outer cannulas because that's the tracheostomy tube body itself. And they either do or do not come with inner cannulas. Inner cannulas, especially in the hospital, are typically disposable. But for home care, a lot of patients have re-cleanable, re, you know, uh, inner cannulas that can be removed and cleaned with peroxide and sterile water and saline and, and I'm not going to get into all that but you guys have probably talked about that already but know whether your ca inner cannula if it's there you got to know if it's disposable or non-disposable and it's supposed to be recleaned and reused because your patients will not like you if you start throwing away all the reusable inner cannulas and then last but certainly not least the fourth main part of a tracheostomy tube is actually a separate piece is the obturator. Obturators are just basically the, if you want to call it a guide, it's not a wire, but it's a guide with a rounded tip that you place into the tracheostomy tube outer cannula when you're placing the trach tube into the patient's stoma either the first time or if you're doing a tracheostomy tube exchange. Anytime you're putting a, a brand new sterile trach tube into a patient, you got to load the obturator into it first. It has a nice smooth rounded tip to prevent trauma. And it also prevents blood and tissue or anything from getting up and obstructing your tracheostomy tube as you place it. That would be terrible if you plugged up your trach tube as soon as you place it, especially if you didn't have a spare one available. That would be, you know, a nightmare. Obviously, if it's a cuffed tracheostomy tube, it's got to have a pilot uh, line and pilot balloon to let you inflate and deflate the cuff. Um, the other thing about tracheostomy tubes, and I, I guess I didn't get into intubation as a procedure, but you know that's how endotracheal tubes are placed. Tracheostomy tubes are placed two main ways, either the bedside percutaneous method or a traditional OR surgical approach. And uh, you know, hopefully you've been exposed to this through school. Uh, they're very handy, at least in our area in Ohio where I'm working at. The bedside percutaneous method has really became popular. I'd say over the last 15, maybe even 20 years, I'd say we do a lot more of those than they do the traditional OR trachs anymore. Um, there's reasons for it, and there's protocols we follow around here, you know, de determining which patients qualify for what route. Um, but there, you need to be aware of both methods. Um, again, the it's not that the traditional OR approach is not used. It just doesn't seem like it's as common around here as um, it used to be. So the traditional OR approach, obviously, you're taking the patient to the OR. Uh, now you're involving a lot of people, transport. You're tying up an OR bed. Now you need an anesthesiologist, a surgeon, a nurse, a surgical tech. A floating nurse. So it's a lot more people involved and all those people need paid. So right away, you know, this is going to be more expensive. Um, trach tubes or, or tracheostomies are not glamorous surgeries, so they don't make doctors rich. So a lot of doctors, at least in my experience, almost look at tracheostomy surgeries as like beneath them. 
I mean, I've worked with neurosurgeons, cardiovascular surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons. EN, obviously, ENTs do a lot of trach tubes, um, but it seemed like the neurosurgeons and the heart doctors I worked with, yeah, they can do tracheostomies. They're like clear to do them, but it, it seems like they'd rather not. And I don't know, maybe it's just the ones I worked with that maybe had e bigger egos. They were like, no, let someone else do the trach tube. I don't want to mess with those. They're not like real glamorous sur surgeries that make people a lot of money. Um, I don't know if they look at them as a nuisance. I'm just being honest. That's my impression of how they acted. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, so again, the patient's already intubated with an endotracheal tube. And in the OR method, they will make a pretty big incision and create a big stoma. Usually they use blunt dissection to kind of dissect the way down to the trachea. And then they make another relatively good size incision into the trachea itself so you got two actual big holes that they make and that's blunt dissection between those who create that stoma and that path um, and basically when the surgeon is ready to insert the tracheostomy tube into the airway that's when the anesthesiologist or nurse anesthetist will deflate the cuff on the endotracheal tube and remove it so there's a split second or so that they're basically without an airway but it's under direct visualization. So the, the surgeon should not miss, you know, they, they're the ones that cut down there and they're looking right into the trachea and they see the endotracheal tube being pulled out and they can um, pop in the tracheostomy tube. Although I did take care of a, a patient once, pretty large, morbidly obese patient that they basically did not put a long enough tracheostomy tube in. And the surgeon thought it was placed, but it really wasn't. So that was kind of a nightmare. It ended up working out okay. Um, so, I mean, you can Google or go on YouTube or whatever, and there's all kinds of videos for the traditional OR approach. Um, so again, some drawbacks of the traditional OR, OR approach ties up a lot more people, takes longer. I mean, your patient, typically, if they go for a surgical trach, they're going to be gone for an hour, hour and a half, at least in my experience, it takes them a while to get them to the OR, to get them done, to get them back up to the ICU. So more timely, they make a much bigger incision. So you're looking at a longer heal time, um, possibly more risk of bleeding. A lot of surgeons that do the traditional way suture the trach uh, neck plate to the skin to prevent dislodgement. And that's great, but that makes trach care kind of difficult. So in my experience, it seems like we've had a lot more patients that get nasty. One even had kind of a flesh eating bacterial infection that made their stoma about the size of a fist that was huge because the that we just couldn't do good trach care because it was sutured to the skin so well or you got an anaerobic bacteria eating away at your flesh underneath because you can't clean it the way you should um, the percutaneous tracheostomy method or that's done at the bedside much more common now at least around here so it's quicker, it's cheaper. You can do it right at the bedside. You don't have to take the patient to the OR anymore. So we usually do these in the ICU, but you can do them anywhere where you have the equipment and trained staff. Around here, we usually had, we started out using two pulmonologists. One mans the bronchoscope that's placed into the endotracheal tube and verifies on a screen so everybody can, in the room can see what the other pulmonologist that's doing the cutting and the placing of the tracheostomy tube can see. Um, we typically use two respiratory therapists, one kind of managing the ventilator and holding the airway endotracheal tube namely in place and moving it 
based on um, an inflating, deflating cuff, whatever the doctors tell them to do, managing all that, making sure they're watching the monitor and they're not desatting and all that stuff. We usually had a couple RNs, one taking care of the patient, you know, that knows the patient's history and everything, and then kind of a float RN that's running around getting anything else the doctors might need that, you know, whether it's drugs or things like that, that maybe come up that they didn't plan on needing at the beginning. Um, other places we started using, uh, physician's assistants were doing the bronchoscopy. Um, you know, I have heard of percutaneous trachs being done without a, a bronchoscopy, without seeing it on screen. At least our doctors that I worked with thought that was too high risk and they didn't like that technique, but basically you can do it. It's once it, and Perk trachs are, it's pretty much making a smaller incision and using guide wires and dilators to make the stoma gently big enough to fit a trach tube instead of making a huge incision like they do in the OR and just plopping the, the trach tube in. Um, so it's a much quicker method. One doctor I used to do what this with, I mean, from start to finish, he could put perk trachs in, I'd say easily under two minutes. I mean, he, and I knew what he liked and where he wanted equipment and everything so he liked me being there with him just because i did a lot of surgeries and things with this guy um so it was a pretty smooth i i've never seen him have any complications i've seen other doctors struggle with this um you know i guess it's like any technique you might have some bumps in the road as they're learning to do it and i guess just like a therapist would with a new procedure like that so much more emphasis on a smaller incision using local anesthetics and we would use a cocktail of sedation drugs to keep the patient still and uh short acting neuromuscular blockers so they're not moving around but lower doses and things compared to what the anesthesiologist in the or would use again using guide wires and modified cellular technique um so much quicker, much cheaper, usually quicker heal time, healing time, less drugs used, smaller doses. So, I mean, in my experience, I could have patients being weaned off the ventilator or at least attempting to wean off the ventilator, maybe within 20 minutes, a half hour after getting the perk trach placed. That doesn't happen with the traditional OR trachs because they got a lot more drugs and more, they, you know, need more time to wake up and all that stuff. Um, Measuring cuff pressures, um, important on tracheostomy tubes as well as endotracheal tubes. Bottom line is you need to make sure the cuff pressure is under 20 millimeters of mercury or if you're using centimeters of water pressure, about under 25. We typically use POSI cuff manometers or at least around here that have the little green zone on it that tell you, hey, it's pretty easy to look at the needle gauge and say, okay, I'm in the green, I'm good. Always read cuff pressure measurements during exhalation. That's when your trachea is at the smallest because your airways do actually collapse a little bit as you exhale. So that's when the cuff pressure on the mucosa is gonna be the highest. Otherwise you see the needle manometers fluctuate a little bit better or a little bit up and down. And I've had students say, well, do I read it during inhalation or exhalation? Always read it during exhalation. That's when it's gonna be the highest and when you should be worried about it. Um, I don't wanna get into that. that. Using a cuff manometer is the simplest, probably safest way to do it. But until you get a cuff manometer on these devices, there's a couple approved techniques you can use. One called the minimal leak technique. So you put your stethoscope over the patient's trachea and listen as you slowly inject air with your syringe into the cuff until you hear a leak in the trachea stop 
then you start to withdraw the plunger on the syringe until a very small leak returns and you can hear it at the peak of inspiration during a mechanical breath in. So what that does is it should prevent aspiration of any pharyngeal secretions the patient has. Again, you can use this on endotracheal tubes as well as tracheostomy tubes. So it's enough to prevent them from aspirating too much, but it's not so much cuff pressure that it's um, going to damage the tracheal mucosa. The other technique that if you, you can use in a pinch if you don't have a cuff manometer or some uh, measuring device is minimal occluding volume technique. And so these are what they say they are. You just listen again with your stethoscope over the patient's trachea as you slowly inflate air into the cuff until you no longer hear air leaking around that cuff during a positive pressure breath in. And then you stop. So you don't do anything else. You don't take air out. You don't add more air. You just stop once you hear the leak go away. So since all the airways expand slightly during inspiration, that will keep pressure exerted on the trachea by the cuff uh, lower during inspiration, but will also be higher during exhalation. In other words, it does a better job of sealing off your airway, but the risk is you might have a little bit more cuff pressure in the MOV technique than what you do with the ML. T technique, obviously, because you took some air out with the MLT technique. So in the short term, both of them are fine. Um, during rapid responses, rapid sequence, intubations, codes and stuff, that's usually what people do a lot of times is MOV. When things settle down and it's obvious your patient's going to, you know, quote, make it, that's when you should, okay, now things have settled down, patient's more stable, now let's measure the cuff pressure. I've never seen anybody during a rapid response or emergency, you know, quick, I need a stat cuff manometer. You know, don't be a nerd and yell that. Use either MLT or MOV in the meantime to maintain adequate sealing and a safe pressure until you can get a device on there to measure. Uh, you've probably seen fenestrated tracheostomy tubes. Fenestration is just a fancy name for a hole. So fenestrated trachs have one or multiple holes on the bend of the outer cannula the big reason why is this can allow air to reach the vocal cord. So now your patient can talk. Make sure the inner cannula, if it has one, has holes that match up with the outer cannula. If it doesn't, you're going to have to remove the inner cannula. Otherwise, you're blocking the whole fenestration and it defeats the whole purpose of it. So know what you're dealing with. Fenestrated tube, trach tubes are great, very flexible, um, can get people, people used to talking, managing their upper airway secretions, uh, maybe getting them weaned off the ventilator a little bit quicker just because they get used to that stuff. Um, I love me some fenestrated trach tubes and they can come cuffed, cuffless, you know, whatever you want. But that's what a fenestration is, just a hole in the bend of an outer cannula lets you do some things. I don't want to say you'll never see Jackson metal tracheostomy tubes because there are still patients running around Actually, they're probably not running around. Maybe they're walking around or in a wheelchair. They're usually not the pictures of health at that point in their life. But that's the first type of tracheostomy tube that was invented in mass market was uh, stainless steel or metal tracheostomy tubes. Um, they're pretty rare now, but every time I tell students, you'll probably never see those. Again, I have a student come in with, usually within a week of me saying that, saying, hey, I saw a patient in clinicals with a Jackson Reese you know, metal trach tube. Um, 
So obviously if your patients go into an MRI, they can't have this trach tube in. It's going to have to be replaced by a, you know, a plastic one. Um, they are typically don't come with cuffs. They used to make cuffed metal trachs, but the cuffs would slide off and people could aspirate them. And that's definitely not a good situation. So typically they're cuffless. They can come with inner cannulas that, you know, obviously they're not disposable. They need to be recleaned. The obturators are a little sharper on the end. So they almost look like little dull arrows instead of a more of a rounded tip, but you still got to use them. They do a great job if you have to have them. They even make fenestrated metal tracheostomy tubes. Uh, I've never played with one, but I'm looking at a picture one from for my slide. So it's a bunch of perforated holes throughout the outer bend on the outer cannula. Um, at least in my experience, Shiley, at least in Ohio where I work, is by far the most common brand and type of tracheostomy tube. So these were kind of the first original plastic tubes that were marketed. And there, there's Roosh, there's Portex, there's all kinds of brands of, of tracheostomy tubes out there. But Shiley is just the one I have the most experience with um, and just kind of been around the longest. They can have disposable under cannulas, non-disposable under cannulas. Um, they can be fenestrated, cuffed, uncuffed. They can come with a little red plot plugging um, cap to plug the trach to try to get people weaned off the ventilators or weaned from tracheostomy tubes quicker. Um, Bavona foam cuffs, Bavona being the brand name and company um, that I'm the most familiar with. There, there might be other ones on the market that I haven't really seen, but Bavona is the one I have experience with. Again, that's one of those foam filled deals. Uh, thought it was supposed to be less traumatic to patients. We did have a pulmonologist, a lot of his long-term trach patients, especially in a certain nursing home he uh, had practice at, um, he would switch them all to Bavona foam cuffs for long-term. I haven't seen one in years around here because that pulmonologist left, but they're still out there. Um, they're just different. Um, again, to use when you unplug the pilot balloon or inflation line, atmospheric pressure is what actually makes the foam expand and help seal off the trachea so once you've done that it's inflated and you so when you go to do a trach tube exchange the only choice you have is to try to hook a syringe up to it and evacuate what little air that's in there that you can but you can't do much about the foam once it's expanded i mean yeah you can make it shrink a little bit but it's, you know, it's not traumatic. It shouldn't be a big deal pulling out of the stoma. So I've only done one trach tube exchange in my life with a Bavona foam cuff when I was a, a young therapist. And I'll admit I had to get the package insert and look and read how to do it because I'd been, I'd never done it before. I always just messed with the air-filled cuff. So once, you know, I grabbed another therapist. She had a little experience with it too. And between the two of us, we got it figure, figured out and everything worked great. But it's just, you know, it's just, they're just different. Um, so be aware of your patient has that because you got to be aware of that, how to manage it. Um, one thing that's not necessarily an airway, but what we call a stomal maintenance device, the most common uh, brand around my area was an Olympic trach button. So these are great for patients. If you have a tracheostomy patient and they're waking up and able to start to talk and maybe they've used a passing mirror valve and all kinds of different things. Basically, stomal maintenance devices are great for weaning patients off the tracheostomy tubes, but you don't want to bite the bullet and just take the trach tube out and see if they sink or swim. 
you want to remove the trach tube but keep their stoma open in case they do fail and don't tolerate it these devices keep the stoma open at the you know the size and length and width that you want in case you would have to pop a tracheostomy tube back then in there at some point so these are great little kind of weaning or bridge devices if you you're just not sure your patient's on the fence you think they're ready to be weaned from the trach but you don't want to just pull it these are great um, so these are basically just little hollow sticks that you can put in I, I'm, I know i'm dumbing this down and summarizing because this lecture is getting kind of long but they just do what they say they are they maintain your stoma so it doesn't heal shut you can suction through these. You can cap them with a little plug um, that comes with these and, and cap it so they're completely breathing through their upper airway. You can uncap it if you need to suction through it. You can put a 15 millimeter adapter to it if you want to ventilate through it. So these are very versatile. They come with a stomal measuring device so you can actually you measure how long the stoma is, how wide it is. And these trach button kits came with multiple washers and spacers to make it longer, shorter. Um, and you, so it, it's, I mean, yeah, it's scientific, but it seemed like it was more art than science. You really had to do some measuring, kind of guessing how long you thought the patient was going to need it and stuff like that. Um, as I told you before, patients with tracheostomy tubes can talk and communicate. Uh, around here, the most common device we use is a passive mirror valve button. Again, I'm not trying to plug any certain manufacturers or I should have gave like a um, statement at the beginning of this because uh, I am using brand names. I know there's probably other devices out there, but the passive mirror valve around here is, just seems to be kind of king. But there are what they call talking trach tubes. Um, and again, I've seen and you guys have probably seen this tube you can just plug a patient's trach tube deflate the cuff obviously to let more air get up to the vocal cords um and talk that way but just by plugging your trach tube with the, your, the patient's finger or, or thumb obviously that should be clean again i've ran into problems with patients doing that with dirty fingers but talking trachs are a little bit different i've never seen one i've seen pictures of them they might be, I don't know if they're more popular on the East Coast. That's my impression from what I've read and seen. Um, these devices are interesting because you don't have to plug your trach tube to talk. These have a little like a Y connector and a, a separate port that you can hook up oxygen or compressed air to. And that goes through a little, it almost looks like a second pilot line and it goes down in, and it's part of the trach tube design. So above the inflated cuff, it has ports where your compressed air can escape out of and actually go up to your vocal cords and let you talk and make noise without you having to deflate the cuff. You know, passing mirror valves and most of the other devices that are communication aids, your first step is you have to deflate the cuff or these things will not work and you will possibly make your patient suffocate because they won't have a way to exhale. On talking trachs, you know, there's various brands and they kind of I'm lumping together. Um, you just take your thumb and plug up the port, but not plug up the tracheostomy tube itself, but there's a little Y connector. So when you plug up that port with your thumb, it forces that compressed air to those little holes or one hole above the uh, inflated cuff so air is directed up a vocal cord. So pretty neat design. Again, some people might like it because you got a separate little thing flopping off the tray tube now that can get tangled up in something. You know, it's almost like a second pipeline. Plus now you're hooked up to oxygen, so that limits mobility and things like that. 
But again, I th these are interesting because that's usually to get air up to the vocal cords, you have to deflate the cuff at a, at a minimum. And your tube probably has to be fenestrated to make sure enough air is getting up there. Um, these are not designed that way. You can get air up there with an inflated cuff. Again, the last one, the passive mirror valve is just the most common brain we use around here. There's other devices out there. Um, basically, ones that are lumped into this device um, as a category, they're basically clear one-way valves. So they allow patients to inhale through their tracheostomy tubes, but then those valves slam shut and will not allow the patient to exhale out that way. So air is forced out of their mouth and nose so they can exhale that way, get used to managing the secretions. And the big reason why you put these on is to let them talk if they can, uh, if they're alert and awake and enough to do that. Um, the biggest thing is you absolutely have to make sure the cuff is deflated first. I would recommend you suction your patient thoroughly through the trach and above the cuff before you put uh, passive mirror valves on so they're not trying to talk through a, a bunch of secretions that have been pulled up there. But you will learn very quickly if you don't deflate the cuff and you put a passive mirror valve on, they don't like that. And they will let you know right away something's not right. They'll point and have a panicked look. Um, things like that. I know one, one time I was helping a wife learn how to take care of her husband that had a tracheostomy tube place and was on a mechanical ventilator and was getting ready to go home. And we started doing passive mirror valve trials and he did great with them, but we had to teach her how to take care of this. And the first time she did it, she forgot to deflate the cuff. Now, and me and the patient both, he was awake and alert, completely knew what was going on. He kind of looked at me and I shook my head, yeah, to him. I know she forgot, and I'm not going to, let, you know, I wasn't going to let anything bad happen, but he quickly kind of started hitting her and pointing at his neck and his trach saying, you know, something's wrong, something's wrong. And then she quickly said, oh my God, I forgot to deflate your cuff. Let me do that really quick. And she did it and everything worked out great. Like I said, it was only with, you know, 10, 15 seconds at the most that this was going on. But I did it and I allowed her to do it because I knew she wouldn't make that mistake again. You know, if you do something that's scary like that, you're really likely not to do it again. So, of course, you know, being a husband and wife, as soon as he could talk, he kind of <laughs> cussed her out a little bit. Basically said, you dumb butt. But he said the rated R version of dumb butt. Um, said, Don't do that again. She's like, I won't. I won't. I'm so sorry. But I looked at her and said, you know, you won't, you won't do that again because you won't forget what happened. You know, he quickly got into respiratory distress and you recognized that you worked together. That's great because if this, something weird like this happens at home, now you got kind of a system in place that that won't happen again. So I thought that was cool. So I know I went way long on this lecture. Um, I've actually kind of whittled it down from what I usually talk about. But I hope you got a good understanding from these three modules I did about all these airway devices ranging from very simple ones up to the more complex tracheal ones we just talked about today. Um, I think the clue is get experience with them, get exposed to them, ask questions. Um, you got to get comfortable with these things. And you're never done learning as a respiratory therapist. So if it's been weeks or months since you've dealt with a certain type of airway, probably a good idea to get one out, play around with it, do some research on it, at least look at pictures. I would say, oh yeah, I remember talking about that in school. What am I going to do if someone comes in in my ER with one of these in place? Um, so again, I, I think that's a sign of a good therapist, making sure you don't forget about all these different options. 
and there's going to be more probably coming out every few years. It seems like they come out with a new batch of like the, the greatest new thing and respiratory therapy and airways are part of that. Um, you know, those salt airways and King's airways, those different devices like that are becoming more popular here in the last few years. And then, you know, I'd, I'm sure within five years, those are going to be outdated and something brand new is going to come out that makes all those things obsolete. That's just kind of where our field goes. So anyways, thanks for listening. Sorry I got so blabbermouth and went so long. I hope you enjoyed the lecture and got something out of it. This is your respiratory care buddy, Chuck Mulholland, signing out.